I'm in the 42nd chapter of the book of Genesis. And so I'll let you turn to that. We work from a worksheet. I guess you probably know by now that um, what we do on Sunday night, if you're just about everybody knows, it's known far and wide. That what we do on Sunday night is uh, study from the Word of God, verse by verse, in some theme or some book. And we have been now four times, four studies, four, four weeks in the, in the life of Joseph, getting ready to um, uh, present this man as the, uh, as the type of Jesus, the, um, art, the, the, the Christ who will come, much like experience, much like Joseph experienced. In the back, each Sunday night, there will be one of these uh, little book, little orders of service, and it will have the outline on, and uh, you may pick them up. They will be there at the beginning of the service on Sunday night. 42nd chapter of the book of Genesis. Do you have a blacklist on which... You have the names of those people who did you, who have done you wrong. Where do you keep that blacklist? Uh, no, that's not a very fair question. Uh, I should ask the question a little bit differently. Um, in the passing of time, uh, do you allow God to um, to take away, erase those? Um, hurts that you've had in your mind and heart to take the sting out of the memory so that you do not hold grudges, you don't hold a grudge? Are you one of those kinds of people that, that wants to get even or get back? Uh, somebody's done you wrong, you, you want to get, you know, revenge. Are you one of those kinds? I don't suppose you are. Are you one of those kinds of people that that forgets what he ought to remember and remembers what he ought to forget, or, if, or is in your life the passing of time uh, able to erase those things from you? Well, let me see if I can put it in, um, in, in a language, in a way that we all can understand. Let's just imagine that you, you grew up in Mexico. Your father was a, was a pretty successful businessman, a farmer there. You were raised, you were born in a large family. You had several members of the family. When you died, when you were born, your mother died. And your father was, a, was an older man at the time, and so he kind of um, um, lavished a special treatment upon you. But in the course of your growing up, your brothers began to hate you. And one day, some sharecroppers came from Oklahoma looking for some uh, nationals in Mexico to... Uh, to, 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 to bring to Oklahoma to work. And your brothers sent you away up to Oklahoma with these sharecroppers to work with them. You've been here just a little bit of time and you were hungry. And all of the special privileges of your youth and childhood just vanished. You had to learn a brand new language. You had to live in a brand new culture. You had to eat different food. It was a totally different way of life. 
You hadn't been here too long until you were framed for a crime that you didn't commit. And you were brought to a hasty trial and sent to McAllister and put in prison or wherever the maximum security is up here. And for 13 years you lived in a cell in a prison in Oklahoma for a crime you did not commit, betrayed by your own family. While you were in prison, you began to think, I've got to make some good use of this time. I've got to do something worthwhile while I'm here. And so you go into the prison library and you begin to study. You get all the degrees that you can get from, you know, from prison. High school degree, you get your college degree, you study law. And when you get out of prison by some uh, quirk or some twist of fate, you become the, uh, the valet to the governor of the state. You work for him. And while you're working for him, you begin to develop a great relationship. And in the passing of time, that man runs for the presidency of the United States and is elected. And he brings you to Washington and puts you in charge of the agriculture. He's, you may, he makes you secretary of agriculture. A famine comes over all the land. I mean, it's worse than the famine in Ethiopia. People are hungry all over the United States and it reaches down into Mexico. But because of your great planning and your great designs, you have stored up food for the world. And people are in soup lines and bread lines all across the country. And you're just kind of moving among them to um, uh, be sure that everybody's getting plenty to eat. And all of a sudden, you see your brothers in the soup line, in the bread line. The very people that betrayed you the ones who sold you out, there you are with them. Do you have a, do you have a blacklist? That's exactly what happened, really. Uh, not exactly, but it's a good uh, analogy of what happened to Joseph. All of a sudden, a famine came. The Scripture says that it was... He, he emphasized it by saying that it was a famine over all the earth. He says that twice. And he uses the word severe. He uses it twice for us to understand that there had never been anything like it in the land. And all of a sudden he sees his brothers coming to get food in Egypt. And what, a, what thoughts must have crossed his, mind, crossed his mind as he saw these brothers of him who had sold him in into a slavery. Now, that's interesting tonight how he used this blacklist. It's remarkable that he didn't even have one. And he had no desire to retaliate or get revenge. Now, we're going to pick up there in Genesis 42, verses one, verse 1 and 2. I want us to kind of zoom in, let the zoom lens of the Scripture just focus in on this event. A famine had come, and so the brothers of Joseph were sent by their father into Egypt. They heard, he heard that there was some food available for every person. They were starving. Now, when he sent these boys to Egypt, he had no idea that Joseph was there. I mean, he perhaps in the passing of time had given up hope that he'd ever be seen alive again. And he certainly didn't know that Joseph was prime minister. All he knew was that they were hungry, and in Egypt there was food. And so he sent his ten sons up to Egypt to get some, uh, some food. Now pick up with me in verse 5. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was a ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. 
And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly, and they didn't recognize him. Now, you know, when I was a kid and I heard this story in Sunday school, I thought, how in the world was it that Joseph would be unrecognizable to his own brothers? Well, I'm not exactly sure how that took place. It's a mystery to me how that could happen. Perhaps it was because he had this Egyptian tunic on and this headpiece and he had a shaven face. All Egyptians had shaven faces. And he spoke to them harshly and he spoke in Egyptian. And besides, they weren't in, the, in their wildest imagination. They never dreamed of seeing their brother alive again. Perhaps it was because God just um, made it impossible for them to recognize Him. Kind of like the two men on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus was walking in their midst, and the Scripture says, and their eyes were holden, and they didn't recognize Him. But here in this, in this dynamic of this encounter, just try to put yourself in the place there and feel Somebody said that the best way to interpret Scripture is just to feel the feelings and smell the smells and hear the sounds in your own mind. Now here were these brothers bowing down to Joseph. And Joseph, the Scripture says, remembered a dream. I want you to flip back because I want to remind you of the dream. It's in chapter 37. This dream that Joseph had that got him, out, got him in trouble to begin with. It's amazing. Look at chapter 37, verse 7. Joseph comes in, he tells his brothers, tells his father, I've had this dream. Now listen to the dream, he says. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up, and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? And, and the way it's asked in the Hebrew is, you don't, You're not trying to tell us that one day you're going to rule over us, are you? And the, and the construction elicits an obvious answer, No. Don't ever say that something's not going to happen to you, because that's usually what happens. You know, in the providence of God, don't ever tell God you're not going to be a preacher because He'll call you to preach, you know, if you do. You're not going to rule over us. And now he said, I still have another dream. Behold, the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father. He remembered the dream. And the dream must have flooded his memory as he saw the event transpiring just as he had, 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 had dreamed in years before. Now Joseph decides he's going to buy a little time. If you'll read this thing, let me just paraphrase it. He says to them, Now you fellows, I know what you're here for. You're a bunch of spies. You've come to spy out, and the Hebrew says, the nakedness of the land, the unprotected, the unguarded sections of land. You've come to spy out the land so that you can come back and overrun us. And they are frightened. Of course, they don't recognize him. Here's this prime minister accusing them of spying. Underneath, Joseph is thinking, underneath, Joseph is saying, I want to see Benjamin, my little brother. I need some time. And the rest is left to our imagination. You like Joyce Landorf's books? Of course you do. She's got a book called Joseph. And in this she imagines in the privacy of their own inner chamber, 
Joseph is talking with his wife, Asenath, and this is what he says. Joseph's face, drawn from the emotional strain of his encounter, managed to smile in their direction, as Pharaoh said, managed to smile in her direction, as Pharaoh said, You can read minds, Asenath. I only hope my inner thoughts were not as transparent to my brothers as they are to you. You were right as usual. Even going with me today, you sensed that this would be the day, and it truly was. He stopped rubbing his legs and leaned back into the pillows of the couch. What a flood of memories rushed over me when I saw them. I knew them instantly, and yet I couldn't believe it was my brother's. He said, shaking his head as if he still did not believe it. Hassanath moved behind him, instructing him to sit straighter, and then she began working her thumbs into the tense, rigid muscles at the top of his shoulders. She was thoughtful as she contended her massage. Joseph said, My Lord, at this moment, I do not know exactly what I'm going to do. I threw them all into prison because as I watched them, I couldn't bear to let even one return to Canaan. Yet I must know the fate of my brother Benjamin. He rested a moment, savoring the work of her fingers. Softly he said, I know that I must test them. I have so many questions. Have they changed? Is Benjamin well and whole? Will they protect and love him as I have, or will they sell him too? What of my father Jacob? O Asenath, I long to go and reveal myself to them right now. I want to go to the prison and shout, It is I, Joseph, but I don't know. I, I know nothing of their heart. I don't know how my dad has dealt with them over the years, and I know nothing of my father and my beloved brother, Asenath cradled his head in her hands and leaned him toward her. Soothingly, she whispered, My love, God will give you a plan, just as He has done for all the starving people of the land. He will. You, you'll see. He will. And He did. And this is the plan. Watch this. He comes back to his brothers and he said, I've got a different plan for you. I want, I'm going to let all nine of you go back. Nine of you go back to, to, to my father, to my brothers. I want one of you to be bound and stay with me. And he took Benjamin, and, uh, he took Simeon and he bound him. And he got ready to send his brothers back. Now, in the, as, as he made this plan known to them, they began to speak to one another in, in Hebrew, not knowing that he could understand what they were saying. So that um, they're over here talking, you know, not keeping anything secret, and he's over there understanding them uh, as they speak in Hebrew. He was fluent in it as a boy. And I want you to pick up with me in verse 21. He said, now, I'm going to send nine of you back. I want you to bring your brother to me. I want Benjamin brought to me because that's the, going to be the test of whether you're telling the truth or not. I'm going to bind Simeon. If you ever want to see him alive, you bring Benjamin, the younger one, back. Now, wait, verse 21. Then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother, 
because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Now, I want to say two things here. I want you to get this if you get nothing else. Some of you may not get anything else. Get this. First is this. The first step in making things right when you've done wrong is to realize you've done wrong. The we is emphatic in verse 21. They are saying, we did this to our brother. We ourselves are to blame for what has happened. We have done wrong, no one else. There's no excuse making. They're not passing the buck. There's no blame game going on. All of a sudden, these men are confessing their sin. I have a good feeling, I have a good idea that for 13 years, this had been gnawing at their guts. I mean, at the, at the base of their being, what they had done. And now it's coming out. They're just gushing it out in confession to one another. That we can blame everybody and everything, all kinds of extenuating circumstances, but we did wrong, we've done wrong, we've, we're guilty, and it's godly sorrow that works repentance. Now, until a person is willing to stop passing the book and putting the blame somewhere else and, and, and making all kinds of rational excuses for why he did what he did, there will never be forgiveness when he says, it's we who did this and we're wrong. First step. Second, there is, what, there is something happening in verse 21 that is, that is uh, a part of every um, experience of wrong and sin. And that is what is called the transfer of distress. Now, now notice what he says in verse 21. It says, therefore, this distress has come upon us. What distress? The distress that they had brought to Joseph. There is this transfer of distress. When you have done wrong and you've never made it right, the distress you have caused comes back to you and you suffer the same distress. Now, is it possible tonight that a part of the agony you are going through, the problems that you're experiencing, the distress that you're dealing with, the depression, the whatever, is because it's just the transferring back of what you have caused others. Now Joseph saw that these men were beginning to break. He knew they were breaking. He'd put them in prison for three days. He'd been down there for years and he knew what was happening to them. God was bringing to them what they had brought to him. I see something else in that. If you'll just leave the hurt that somebody's caused you up to God, He'll take care of the business. Now, God doesn't always pay at the end of the day, but at the end of the day, God always pays. And the distress that people cause others, they themselves reap. The Scripture says, Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. Leave that up to God. That's exactly what Joseph did. And this distress, this pain, this guilt that these boys were feeling now was the direct result of what they had inflicted upon their brother Joseph. Now Joseph didn't have the blacklist. It's kind of like W.E. Sangster. 
One day W.H. Sangster was writing out his Christmas cards and a man looked and saw that, that he had uh, the name of a, of a man down there. A guy, a man, the, his friend said, Man, you're you, you going to send that, that man a Christmas card? You're not going to send him a Christmas card, are you? He said, Well, why not? And he reminded him of something that man had done to him 18 months before. He said, Oh, well, I'd, I'd forgotten that. He said, You know, when that happened, I just made a covenant with God. I just made a promise to God that I would remember to forget. And God took that memory from me. And, and I, I didn't even remember that the man had done that. That's exactly what Joseph did. How do I know this? Because he named his boy Manasseh. He took the sting out of his memory. And he just left the dealing of this hurt up to God. Now let me say a word tonight about those of us who have done someone else wrong. If, you have, if, you have, if your brother has ought against you and you have caused someone else pain and hurt and heartache, you're going to experience the distress of that for the rest of your life until it's made right. You're the one that suffers for that. He's probably, he may have already forgotten. Now I want you to notice one final thing. Look at verse 25. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. And so they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, as they got out on their journey, the donkeys got hungry and thirsty, so they stopped to feed them. And they took their grain sack off the donkeys to feed them. When they opened the sack, saw the money there. Saw all this money there. And the other guys said, they said to their brothers, do, do the same. They got their sacks off and they opened up and in, every, in, the, in the top of every sack was this money. Now look at verse 28. Then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank and they turned trembling to one another. It's the word in, 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 in the first chapter of 1 Samuel that's used for an earthquake. It's what, uh, it's what Isaac did when he realized that Jacob, Jacob had ripped him off. The, the scripture says that inside there was this trembling earthquake. They were, dis, they were disturbed in their heart. And this is what they said. What is this that God has done for us? Now watch this. Here were these men who had sinned against their brother, who had sold him out into into captivity, who had wronged him, and all of a sudden they open up and they saw this merciful provision of God. And they couldn't believe it. Why? Because they knew they didn't deserve it. Because they recognized that what they deserved was punishment for what they'd done. But instead of punishment, they got mercy. Instead of justice, they received grace. Now before you close your mind and refuse to forgive somebody, you just remember how much you've been forgiven. And before you close your heart and say, I'm not going to love him. He doesn't deserve it. He may not. But just remember, neither do you deserve to be loved. And so Jesus taught us this parable. He said a man was forgiven this humongous debt. This, the master just wrote it off and said, it's canceled. 
And then this same man saw his servant who owed him a tiny amount of money and he demanded his payment and Jesus said, that man needs to understand how much he's been forgiven. For when a person understands how much he's been forgiven, he's more willing to forgive. I was, um, I was out visiting one night. I went to this home of, um, of, a, of, a, fa- of a couple a lost man, his wife, and they received me and they were so cordial and nice. It was just a tremendous time. In fact, I developed a friendship with them that has lasted until each one of them is now deceased and they asked me to preach their funeral. But, 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 but while we were there, just a, I just had the best time. And then I, I approached them about giving their heart and life to Christ. And the lady said something that just really rocked me back on my heels. She said, we haven't had enough trouble to become a Christian yet. I said, what? She said, well, people turn to the Lord when, when they get in a lot of trouble, you know, and a lot of heartache comes or maybe somebody gets sick or something and they, they'll, they'll turn to the Lord when there's problems come. And we, we've just had it, I guess she said, I guess we've just had it too easy. There have been no problems in our life and, 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 and everything's just been going too great for us. And I said, you know, the Scripture says that it is the goodness of God that leads to repentance. That, that, that it's not when God brings into our life judgment and, and suffering and heartache, if that's true. It's not that that causes us to turn to God. It's the recognition of His goodness. Now, I'm speaking to some people tonight who who may have sinned against God and against his fellow man. Not like Joseph was sinned against perhaps, but you may have some things in your life that are wrong and and have not been made right. I just want to remind you of the goodness of God in your life to you. And when they saw what they did not deserve, when they saw how good God had been to them, an earthquake took place in their heart. Now there are two applications Number one, God activates, God activates a seared conscience when we are victims of a similar treatment we once gave someone else. God activates a seared conscience when we are the victims of a similar treatment we once gave someone else. And Herod had John the Baptist's head removed from his shoulders. And the scripture says that word came to, John, to, to Herod that, about Jesus. You know, what, you know what Herod said immediately? He said, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. God activates a seared conscience when we fall victim of a similar experience we've given someone else or some pain we've caused, some treatment we've caused someone else. Number two, verse 28. God activates a seared conscience when we recognize that we are the recipients of an undeserved favor. God activates a seared conscience when we recognize that we are the recipients 
of an undeserved favor. Now I'm going to ask you to search your heart tonight. Have you a wrong in your life that has not been made right? You're the one responsible for it. Doesn't matter what that person did to you if you've done him wrong. Doesn't matter what circumstances are surrounding that event. If you've done wrong, you're the one responsible for it. Stop playing the blame game. Stop shifting the blame, passing the buck, blaming someone else. You're the one responsible. Now is God dealing your heart in your heart about the wrong that has not been made right? Have you been suffering the same distress that you've caused someone else? You know, uh, when I was a kid, I'd see young people, they'd, they'd, they'd gossip about somebody, you know, and backbite against one of their friends, and, and it wouldn't be two days later somebody would be saying the same thing about them. I, I've noticed, you know, as adults, that sometimes when we, when we are critical of someone else, it isn't a week somebody isn't critical of us. That's the way God makes us aware of the wrong that's been done needs to be made right. Is there a wrong in your life that needs to be made right? I want you to remember that God forgave you and loved you in spite of the terrible wrong that you've done. Can't you forgive? Can't you tear up that blacklist? Can't you throw away that black book? Can't you forget about getting even? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the lesson that we have learned tonight, a lesson of God's mercy and grace, an example of one who just allows the ugliness and the hurt of another to be cared for, to be dealt with by God Himself. Help us, Father, to take our eyes off what others have done. Look to Thee. Help us to look to Thee and then see what we've done to others. Help us to make the right, the wrong right. Because I pray in Jesus' name. Now there are three invitations. The first invitation tonight is the invitation to salvation, to discipleship, to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ on the basis of God's mercy and love and grace. Second invitation is for you to make right what's been made wrong. Public recommitment or rededication of your life or to join our church. These are the ways God leads us and this is the will of God concerning us. I'm praying concerning you. So we'll stand and we'll invite you to come while, our, while we sing.